0: morning. All right, how are we doing this morning? Good. Cindy says, you always start your sermons the same way, so are you enjoying the nice weather? I'm trying to, but my allergies are killing me. Well, uh, as we begin this morning, I want to Announce a little change to the format of what we do Sunday mornings. You don't know this yet, but you have enrolled in the four-minute singing school. And uh, you know one of the questions we have as a church is how do we um, how do we present new format? How do we learn new songs together? Well, we've been trying to do that some on Wednesday nights, but not everyone is able to be here Wednesday night, and so that's a pretty small audience. And then when we just throw new songs out there Sunday mornings, it's a little harder to pick those up, and sometimes it's not, you know, uh, in, unless you're Jonathan, Jonathan's a rip-the-band-aid-off kind of guy, and uh, we're, we're learning some new stuff, and that's a great way to do it. But we had a wonderful event for that uh, Keith Lancaster uh, um, worship uh, that we had here on a Tuesday night a couple Tuesdays ago. And uh, we really kind of want to find ways to keep that momentum. So the Four Minute Singing School, what's going to happen is uh, at the end, after uh, we'll do an invitation song, and then we have the elder coming up, who the elder comes and gives announcements and closing prayer. The elders, I've talked to the elders, they have agreed in principle to reduce that announcement time a little bit. And uh, the song leaders, instead of leading a closing song, they're gonna hand it over to me. And we're gonna listen to a song, a new song. We're not gonna sing out loud. if If you already know the song, sing it quietly to yourself but in a way that everyone, so people who don't know the song at all, they can just listen. We're going to listen to the song once, and then we're going to try to sing it together. And that will be our closing. So after the closing prayer, that's the way we're going to sing ourselves out of the building. And so uh, that's a four-minute singing school, I'm calling it. So hopefully that works out well. Well, we're wrapping up... uh, 1 Corinthians we're in chapter 15 today but I want to just briefly summarize what we looked at in chapter 14 where we can kind of see some of Paul's concerns that were expressed. One concern is that we follow the way of love and I think that's the conversation that we have to hold everything he says under. And then he says try to excel in those gifts that build up the church. Everything must be done so that church may be built up and everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So he those are this, this desire to build up the church, this desire to do everything in an orderly pattern, a way that makes space for uh, love to grow and love to flourish among us. It is all about following the most excellent way of love. Paul continued to show the Corinthians that spiritual maturity, it's not based on your status or your talents or even what gifts of the Holy Spirit you may have. The most spiritually mature in any congregation of the Lord's people are the people whose lives are saturated by the most excellent way of love, uh, whose lives are committed to the building up of the church. Uh, These are people who welcome diversity in the body of Christ, and we see that it's one body made up of many different parts, and we make space for those different parts to grow and flourish among us. Uh, and because we're committed to uh, the most excellent way of love, we want to do things in a fitting and orderly way, uh, enough order that we allow love to grow among us. Um, that means that there are some things that we keep to ourselves. That means there are sometimes we step out of the spotlight. There, there are some times that we have to make ourselves interruptible. And let other people step forward. Uh, and there are times that we just have to learn to hold our peace. And our conversation and what I have in my mind is not the most important thing going on right now. Well, now Paul begins chapter 15 with a summary of the gospel. I like to call it the gospel in a nutshell. And this gospel is the common ground on which all Christians stand. And at the center of the gospel message is the message of resurrection. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So Paul has a lot of history that he shared with these Corinthian believers. He shared a lot of tough words with the Corinthian Christians. And so he feels the necessity of coming back to reminding them and remembering the core of what they believe and the core of what they hold in common together. The foundation message that is so central to their identity in Christ that it's tied to their very salvation. Without this, there is no salvation. Paul is saying, remember this proclamation of the gospel. Remember that you heard this gospel and that you accepted it. Remember that you committed yourself to this gospel. You stand on it. It is the foundation of your life. And this isn't the only place where Paul explicitly ties the gospel to salvation. He does this in this verse in Romans that I absolutely love. Sometimes this verse convicts me as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That is the power of this good news. To bring salvation. God the Father's gracious act of love in the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, being born The life he lived, the teaching he gave, the death he died, his burial, his resurrection. This is the content of the gospel. And accepting this gospel, being obedient to this gospel, building your life around this reality and this message of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God that brings salvation. But Paul says you have to hold it firmly. You have to hold on to it. Don't let it go. Don't let it fade. Don't let it slip away. This is the stuff that you have to believe because if you don't believe it, stop wasting your time and get up and walk out. Really, if, if you don't believe what I'm about to tell you, you just should walk away because there's nothing left for you. That is how central this message is. The gospel is the line in the sand. The gospel is the line in the sand. It is the sword that cuts the human race into two groups. Those who believe and are being saved and those who do not believe and are perishing. for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. And maybe this will help you, if if you think about the opposite of this, it'll help you maybe understand Uh, The weight of this message that we believe. What is the anti-gospel? The anti-gospel is a gospel that's not of first importance. There are other things in your life that you judge to be more important, so it's not the first priority. There are other things there. That is the anti-gospel. The anti-gospel is that Christ did not die The anti-gospel is that his death doesn't deal with your sin. It doesn't fix anything. It had no purpose, that death. The anti-gospel is that uh, this was not done according to Scripture. The anti-gospel is that he was not buried. He was not resurrected. That he was not resurrected on the third day. That that was not according to Scripture. And finally, that he did not appear to witnesses or that all of those witnesses lied That is the anti gospel in the nutshell. And Paul is urging the exact opposite of that. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the core of the gospel. And there are two ways that people tend to move the gospel away from first importance. Two ways that we lower the priority of the gospel. The first is deciding that the gospel is less important than it really is. Uh, This is the response of apathy to the gospel. A lot of people in this world are very apathetic to Jesus. Oh, that's nice. Jesus, Buddha, whatever, it's you know you do that thing at church that's your business that's fine the the apathetic heart is the heart that is cold toward jesus this is the heart that when it hears that jesus died for my sins it kind of shrugs the shoulders and says well well that's nice you have fun you're still looking at me oh you guys are looking at me because i'm your preacher apathetic heart. It just doesn't really care what Jesus has done for us. It does not value. The the apathetic heart is a heart that is blind to your own sin. Sin? What's sin? Sin's not that big a deal. It's whatever I want. Whatever I can get away with. If it makes me happy, why does it matter? An apathetic heart is a heart that is blind to to their, your own need. So the first way that we move the gospel out of primary place or primacy is by undervaluing that message. The second way uh, that we move the gospel from first importance is that we overvalue things that are less important. What is less important than the gospel? Everything else. Whatever that everything else is. Undervaluing the gospel Reveals an apathetic heart Overvaluing other things above the gospel It reveals an anxious heart Anxious heart Do you know what anxiety feels like? Your present relationship crisis Your loss Your legal problems, your addictions, your workplace drama, your health crisis, runaway inflation, your investments that are tanking—if those things are in the place of the the, the primary place—you're going to feel a lot of anxiety when those things start to be rocked. And inevitably, those things will. The the those are all rugs that will be pulled out from under your feet. When you prioritize the things of this world above the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're inevitably standing on shaky ground. Anxiety is going to be the fruit of that kind of decision and that kind of life. Of course, the answer to an apathetic heart and the answer to an anxious heart is a heart of faith. Faith. A heart of faith. Faith is trust. Trust in this message of gospel, this good news about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Uh, Somehow it jumped two slides. Oh, there it goes. All right. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He didn't just die. The gospel is that Jesus' death had a purpose. Jesus' Jesus's death, it accomplished something for us. Uh, this is the aspect of the gospel that is tied to substitutionary atonement. Jesus, in that sense, is a sacrifice for your bad behavior. He was killed uh, and put to death and separated from God because of you and what you've done. Also in a global sense, but you have to own that as an individual as well. Jesus, what he did is he took your place and that should mean something to you. If you accept His death in your place, there are certain things that are expected of you now. You're meant to live a whole new kind of life. Well, this death, it was talked about in the Scriptures. Um, meaning that God's plan for you through Jesus Christ, God always knew that this was going to be the result, that He was always going to do this. Now, Paul doesn't mention specific Scriptures here, I think he must have had Isaiah 53 in mind. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's substitutionary atonement. That is Jesus Christ dying for you. That is the gospel. The gospel is also that he was buried He died and was buried. It was a literal death, a real death, a biological death. It didn't just appear to be a death. And there was a real burial. His physical, biological dead corpse was put into a grave, an actual hole in the ground meant to hold dead bodies. That all happened. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was biologically dead, and he came back to life. And his resurrection body, it still had wounds that could be visibly seen. It was a body that could be touched. It was a body that could eat food. That body also did some strange things, like show up in the middle of a room when the doors are closed and stuff like that. Again, uh, the three days of the resurrection was always a part of something that God had planned, according to the scriptures. And you read Old Testament verses that talk about this Hosea chapter 6, 2 and 3. Jonah, the story of Jonah. Three days he was in that fish, and then the fish spit him. The Christians have always understood Jonah as a symbol of resurrection. Um, Psalm 16 talks about this. So this was always God's plan. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. The 12 were the 12 apostles that were disciples of Jesus. And so this number would now include Matthias, and the certain the main criteria for replacing Judas after his betrayal was they had to find someone who had been an eyewitness of the resurrection who could attest and testify to the truth of the gospel you can read about that in acts chapter 1:22 then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, that's a big number of people. And this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 is the only place that talks about that number of 500. It doesn't talk about every resurrection appearance in 1 Corinthians 15, but this is the, this, this huge group. And I don't know who all would be a part of that group—the guys on the road to Emmaus, the woman, the Mary at the tomb. What, what all is in that number? But most of these people were still alive. That's an incredible thought to uh, me—that you could have all of these eyewitnesses that can say, "I saw this with my own eyes." That is when, at the time of this writing, some of them had fallen asleep and gone to be together with the Lord. But if you want to know the truth of this, there are plenty of people around that can verify this and that you can talk to. And then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. James, uh, the brother of Jesus. Uh, We read that Jesus' brothers, they didn't believe in him when Jesus was alive. But of course, if your brother, who you don't believe in, and you know he's dead, he shows up alive, it might change your thinking a little bit. James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, you read through James, and you can just see clearly that this is a man whose life had been permeated and saturated with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. James is almost a commentary of sorts on Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Resurrection had changed everything for James. And then to all the apostles. So this is apostles in the larger sense than just the twelve. The twelve were a special group and they had a special function and purpose. Uh, But there are other apostles Uh, besides the 12 that are mentioned. Apostles are, are those who are sent out, these special missionaries of the church. Paul was a part of that number. But Paul even differentiates himself further from this group of apostles. Because he says, I am not even worthy to be included in that group, yet by the grace of God I am what I am. And last, last, he appeared to me also, As to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul did some pretty bad stuff, and I want to point out the Greek here a little bit. It's uh, been studying about what does this mean? Abnormally born. And there are several ways that that word can be translated. Abnormally born can be translated as stillborn or miscarriage. But it was also the term that was used to designate an aborted fetus. An aborted fetus of all things. So oftentimes in the ancient world, abortions were performed through exposure. Where babies would just be left out in some remote place to pass away, away from people's ears to hear, and uh, it's a crazy world we live in because we experience this reality in Tanzania. Uh, we ended up saving babies many times who had been left out in the woods in the middle of nowhere to die, abandoned in hotel rooms. We had one little guy that Nema House helped save who was found floating on top of excrement in a pit latrine, and that pit latrine was teeming with maggots and all kinds of human filth in there. And those maggots had bore their way so deeply into that little guy's ears that they had to be surgically removed. It was an unwanted life, a discarded life, a thrown away life. And I think this is what Paul is trying to communicate, uh, what he had in mind by using such striking words as calling himself, he says, You want to know what my, my conversion is like? It was like an aborted fetus, unwanted and as good as dead, until Jesus came along and picked me up over the dung heap of humanity. And he redeemed me, and he said, Now you are mine. That's the imagery that Paul is using, talking about his conversion. by this grace by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect no I worked harder than all of them yet not I but the grace of God that was with me and this isn't you can't read this and I know it loses something in the English here that we, you would think this, Paul's point is not that hey Peter's pretty good but Look what I did. He, he just literally, if you read about what Paul did, he was nonstop. stop he, he worked harder. And it's not like I'm better than this guy or not than this guy. The point is all of it is the grace of God. He's saying, look what I was until Jesus Christ pulled me off the dung heap of humanity. And when you realize you're that kind of sinner and you realize that you're in need of that kind of Savior, that kind of response that is born out of that heart, it is a response of devotion. The most devout Christians that I've seen in my life are not the ones who just kind of come through the motions and everything's been handed to them with silver spoons and they're just like, yeah, I believe. Meh. It's the gospel. I'll come to church if I get around to it. We got all these sporting things. We got all this da, da 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 da. We've got those who are most sold out. And we go through seasons in life where we realize it, and other times we just kind of back away from that and need to be convicted and go after it again. The most sold out people for Jesus Christ is the, are those who realize that you're you're a great sinner. And you are in need of a great Savior. So Jesus talked about this reality as well. We see this played out in Luke chapter 7, 747. There, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Who's been forgiven a little? Who's been forgiven a lot? All right, that's the one you should raise your hand to. And maybe our list is a little different between us. Paul knew that he wasn't just a pretty good guy who just needed a little extra sprinkling of grace. Paul knew that he was a terrorist destroying the work of God. He knew that he was an enemy of God. Paul knew that he had a lot of things that he needed a Savior to deal with. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. There's a message behind all of these things that you're getting worked up about, Corinth. You're really impressed by certain spiritual gifts. You're really impressed by those people who have special knowledge and wisdom. You're really getting fired up about whose team you're on. Well, I'm of Peter. Oh yeah? I'm on Paul's team. Paul planted this church. Oh yeah? Well, Apollos is amazing. should listen to him. Then you always got those people too who play the trump card. Well, I'm of Jesus. Paul says it doesn't matter where this gospel, where you heard it because this message is all the same. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So these first verses of 1 Corinthians 15 It's all the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in the nutshell. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to many witnesses. This should not be new news to us. But when was the last time this gospel broke your heart? We, we know that there are all kinds of different reactions to the gospel. Even among us as believers, even among us in different times and different seasons of life, But what does the gospel mean to you right now today? Does it find you with an apathetic heart? I'm trying. I'm going through the motion. I'm here, aren't I? Just leave me alone. I'm here. Sometimes the gospel finds us there. Or does the gospel find you with an anxious heart? All these things that are going wild in your life that you just are finding out, I have no control over any of this. Does the gospel come to you and speak life to your heart of faith? I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior. Do you cling to this message above all other messages in your life? Or do your life actions, the way you spend your time and your resources, do they betray a heart that is loosening its grip on this message? If you let go of the gospel, there's nothing left for you except vanity. So let's end again this morning. Jonathan, you can come up. I have one last story I want to share from Luke chapter 7. And this is talking about reactions to Jesus. Reactions to Jesus. Peter's in, or Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home. This Pharisee, Simon, is there. And there's this other woman of questionable, everyone knows, this is not good company kind of woman coming in. And Jesus knows what is on Simon's heart. And so he asks him this question. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Simon had already seen her. He'd already judged her. He'd already said if if this guy was really a prophet, he would know who this woman is. He thought he saw her, but he did not see her the way Jesus saw her. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Let me ask you again. What does the gospel mean to you today? What is the difference between Simon and the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7? What's the difference between them? See, Simon, he approaches Jesus like a skeptic. He treats Jesus like an intellectual curiosity. He's running tests on Jesus. If this guy really was a prophet, well, he would clearly know this. He's making judgments. There are a lot of people who treat Jesus Christ in his gospel like an intellectual curiosity. And he's blind to two things. The first way Simon is blind is that he cannot see that he too is a great sinner like this woman. He can't see that he's a great sinner as well. And the second way that Simon is blind is that he cannot recognize that Jesus is a great savior. That's the difference between this Pharisee and this sinful woman. She knows she's a sinner. She knows that she is broken. She knows she can't fix things herself. She knows she needs a Savior. Do you remember that you need a Savior? See, most of us have been doing this Jesus thing for quite a long time. And with familiarity comes complacency a lot of times. And a lot of times, without even meaning to, We start to treat Jesus like an intellectual curiosity. A great teacher, maybe. But the truth is, every single one of us is that sinful woman. It all comes down to whether or not you realize it. When was the last time that you let the gospel undo you. When was the last time you let the gospel cut you to the heart? You are a great sinner and you are in need of a great Savior. And that is the gospel message that is made available to each of us. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So I don't know what your needs are this morning. If we can be in prayer for you, Uh, if you need the prayers of this church, uh, we always uh, make available. We have a baptistry back here to baptize people into the body of Christ. I'll be right up here And uh, if you have some need that you need to bring before the congregation, you need to talk to me, you can come find me up here. We're going to go ahead and uh, stand and sing our invitation song now.